Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today is episode 114 and we're going to be interviewing Linda E. How are you doing today, Linda? I'm doing really well, thank you, Jim. How are you? I'm doing well. And we were just talking before you're from across the pond, so it's a little later there in the day for you. It is. <laughs> All right. So let's dive in here. Let's get started. Tell me about growing up in your childhood. Oh, I had a really normal sort of, I would say, whatever normal is. Had a happy childhood. Um, yeah, mom and dad and my brother just had a, a normal sort of upbringing. Um, nothing special. Um, lots of nice family holidays. And yeah, went to the local school, sort of got... Um, uh, a normal secondary education. I know the education system over there is very different. So, um, yeah, from uh, secondary school, I then went out to work, um, even though I have been to college and university since what, then. What is secondary school? Um, okay, so we have primary school, which is um, for the sort of naught to... 10 11 years so that's primary and you'll have infants primary and then from primary school you have secondary school which is from 11 years to 16 years okay and then after 16 years you can go on to college or university so it's usually college for two years and then university from 18 onwards um so yeah so where I left school at the age of 16 and I went to work in a bank um so yeah I was going to say um just a, a you know a, a basic well I say a basic a good education um went into working into a bank um then yeah had sort of a corporate life if you like working for some uh, big companies um and then we had a recession hit over here in 2009 yep. and it was at that point um, I was writing software programs and um, training uh, building site managers on how to use handheld terminals and yeah when the recession hit it hit the construction industry really hard so I was made redundant then I got myself another job again in the construction industry and was made redundant again in three months. And it was at that point I thought, do I really want to do this for the rest of my life? Do I want to be writing software programs, training people? Um, and I set up a business with my daughter at that point and we went into business and um, set up a hair and beauty salon. Okay. And I was part of the hair and beauty salon for 10 years, but I think it was after about six years, I realised it just wasn't my passion. And as much as I loved what I was doing and I loved the people, I loved my clients, and I could have probably carried on doing that till I retired, but I kept thinking, no, it's not my passion. So... um. Yeah, so I left there after about 10 years, which would have been 2000 and well, look, where are we now? 22, about 2018, 2019. And it was at that point that uh, I made a 
not a huge decision. It was more a light bulb moment because at that point, my son had been in addiction for 25 years. Who is this? My son. Your son. Mm-hmm. So what was, he, what was he addicted to? Um, his main demon was alcohol, but he he tried everything. Um drugs he had a heroin overdose going back some years ago and was on life support for a week um so yeah so he he'd gone into addiction at the age of 15 I didn't know it was quite that early uh until recently um so yeah so it had been a real roller coaster of a journey because I had no knowledge of addiction I didn't know anyone that had ever been an addict and I was just thrown into this chaos that we call addiction um and yeah so I was sort of flying solo so I had no support no help for about 18 years um did everything that I shouldn't have done so I did all the enabling I've got no boundaries so your your son the father was not in the picture uh no we'd split up when he was oh I think he was about five he still saw his he saw his father every week okay he he had regular contact with him so he used to go there most weekends um and then he'd be with me in the week um, and yeah, we'd just do the normal, you know, sort of school, after school clubs, that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, it was, I realised there was a problem when he was probably <clears throat> early 20s when he liked, and, and I, don't get me wrong, I know all young people, you know, they, they'll go out, they'll have a drink um, and it's a social thing. But with my son, it was different. Um, All his friends were big drinkers. And I just thought there was just something not right. Um, And again, he was just like, no, he didn't have a problem. Um, He was just enjoying himself. And then I had a conversation with one of his friends. This must have been in his early 20s. And the conversation was uh, around the drinking and them going out and partying, etc. And he said to me, he said, the thing is, we all get up the next morning going, oh, no, never again, because we've got such bad hangovers. He said, but my son would get up and just start drinking again as soon as he woke up. So... I knew there was a problem there, as I say, that was probably early 20s. I didn't know about the drugs till a lot later on. He used to smoke cannabis on a recreational level. Um, and then that got out, out of control as well. And then that just led to bigger things, harder drugs, alcohol and drugs at the same time. And... Let me ask you this. I uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I have my own, I guess, theory. Do you think cannabis is a gateway drug, or do you think it's just 
the first thing that's easiest to get. I think I said to myself, you know what? It's just the easiest thing to get. So when you're growing up, everybody knows, oh, my brother smokes weed. Not everyone does cocaine or acid or heroin in high school or primary, secondary school, whatever it's called over there, college. But um, cannabis is just the easiest thing around. So I, I don't actually think it's a gateway drug. I think, once again, it's just the easiest thing to get for the first drug to try. I think you're right there. I think it's just so readily available. Yeah. Um, the easiest one for them to get hold of. And yeah, not everyone that smokes cannabis progresses to harder drugs. So yeah, I just think it's um, one of those things, as you say, it's the easiest thing for them to come across and to get hold of. Well, um, another thing about addiction is, is this guy, I just mentioned him in the last episode, Gabor Mate, where he says, Believe it or not, he doesn't think the problem is the drugs. He goes, because if you take 10 people and you give them cocaine, only maybe three people are going to become addicted to it. So there's more people that are not becoming addicted to it than are becoming addicted to it. Um, so he says it's not the drugs that are the problem. It's the people who are taking the drugs. It has to do with their mental issues, their health issues, trauma that's been given to them in their life. Trauma is a huge thing. I wrote an article on it because we write articles for the group and it's it's a it's wow it's very prevalent a lot of us have trauma and yeah I agree with that because my son had trauma but I didn't find out until he was in his Mm -hmm. um early to mid-20s um but also he did have um borderline personality disorder again that wasn't diagnosed till he was 21 and even then he didn't tell me um, straight away. Um, so he had mental health issues and he had trauma. And what kind of trauma did he have? Uh, sexual abuse. From who? Um, a partner of mine. Um, yeah, I I had no idea, no idea whatsoever. So yeah, that's something I sort of have to uh, live with. Um, every day but he he's worked through that now um I have spoken to him about it and he's put all that behind him now uh he did suggest that maybe I needed therapy um to sort of for me to get over it because he says it's the past can't do anything about it now Um, but yeah so as a child he had a very obsessive personality shall we say um and it was always all or nothing so if he did something he would do it to absolute excess until he'd had enough and then it'd be like no not interested don't want to know anymore so it was very I look back now and I recognize it at the time I didn't I just thought it was a child having fads of doing like, you know, different like karate or whatever, football. Um, so, yeah, I didn't uh, I didn't sort of pinpoint that he had quite an ob- obsessive personality up until much later. And, yeah, I find a lot of Gabor Marte stuff absolutely fascinating. Um yeah absolutely amazing because yeah I think you don't 
it's not until you start reading about things and researching that you realize more about trauma because i was asking someone over here whether our doctors in the uk get trained on trauma because it's more and more and more people are really suffering from traumas um or perhaps it's just we talk about it more openly now um all sorts of different traumas and the answer was no they don't get any training on trauma and to me it's the same as they only get out of all their years of um studying to become a doctor they only get one month on addiction so that's the only training they get and i just think in the world that we're living in now that their curriculum really needs to be updated uh, i'm sure i'm not the only one that thinks that but it, i was really surprised i was shocked um and I mean, my experiences with doctors when my son was in addiction or when I needed help, the response was very poor, um, more like, oh, pull yourself together. Um, nothing wrong with you. Just, you know, just go back to work. You'll be fine. Was it his primary doctor or was that like a therapist or, or a psychologist? No that was his primary doctor okay. he did have a number of therapists um unfortunately over here uh, and i don't know what it's like over over there actually but over here um it's potluck what therapist you get because we've got the national health service over here so we don't have <clears throat> private medical care or anything like well we do have that but um i didn't have it and it was very potluck what therapist you you get if you're going through the nhs so he went through an awful lot of therapists as in some he just did not get on with and he used to say to me they haven't got a clue they're talking out of a textbook um they've never been through what i've been through um and then the ones that he did sort of gel with they tended to get burnt out quite quickly and they would move on so then he'd end up with another therapist so that went on for years years and years um and he i would say the latter part of his addiction he came across a really really good therapist who understood and he was he, he'd never experienced addiction or anything but what he educated is, oh i'm sorry you keep going no uh, this therapist had educated himself about addiction so oh okay more aware of what my son was going through gotcha. uh, and they got on really well and he was probably one of the best people um my son thought an awful lot of him and looked up to him which is what i think he needed at the time but again that person got burnt out and moved on and he rang me to say i'm moving on and i don't know how to tell your son um and I, I don't said, well, get why they would move on that's that sucks 
he he moved on to a, a different department completely. Okay. And I, I think again he'd been doing it for doing that particular area of um it was like a community psychiatric nurse specializing in drugs and alcohol addict like addiction. And he'd been doing it about 18 months, and I think the caseloads that they have are huge because there aren't enough therapists and I think they get burnt out very quickly. So he moved on to a completely different area, which left my son again with no one, basically. Um, but yeah, I mean, to get back to my journey, um, I knew that I wanted to be a speaker. I didn't know what I wanted to speak about at the time. And I went to this um, seminar and I was a health and wellness coach. That's what my training was, um, which I'd done while I was at the salon. And um, when I walked into this seminar, everybody wanted to be a health and wellness speaker. And I thought, right, I'm not doing that. There's too much competition. <laughs> so... I sat there and I thought, what am I really passionate about? And it just came to me, I wanted to help other people that were going through what I'd been through or what I was going through at the time. So, yeah, in a split second, I just found exactly what it was that I wanted to do. And yet it is my passion. All I want to do is, and what I do do, is work with families who have got an addicted loved one. And I work with them. I teach them how to live a healthy, guilt-free life. But I also teach them how to support the addict in the right way. Because I think over here, and again, I don't know what it's like over there, I have spoken to a few people in America who have got addicted loved ones. Um, so I think it is very similar over there to over here. There's no help for families. And the um, health service uh, over there, I get the impression from a few people I've spoken to that they would only entertain therapy if the addict was actually there as well. Um, and the, the couple of people that I spoke to that were going through that, they were like, there wasn't a hope in hell that their addict was going to go to therapy because they obviously weren't ready. Um, so, so, yeah, so over here, you know, we there's just nothing for families. I was really, really lucky. I found help for me. I did try Al-Anon um, years ago, but that didn't work for me. And then you, I found. Let me ask you, what didn't work about Eleanor? I don't know. It just didn't resonate with me. Um, I wasn't getting anything from it. All it seemed to be was, and this is just my personal experience: a group of people in a room just complaining about their addict. There was no educational side of what addiction is. There was no um no no support as in helping me or suggesting ways that I could 
help my addict in a positive way. So I, I went there probably for about six months maximum. And then I left and then didn't find this other group until 2013. And it's, uh, it's a family group that was run by a local addiction centre. So they've got like a, a rehab that um, my son went through a, a few times. And then they do the family support group. And the guy that runs it, he wrote the programme for the addicts. Now, he's been in recovery for 27 years now. And he ran the fat or run, still runs the family groups once a week. And this man is absolutely amazing because I have learned so much about addiction. I have learned how addicts think um, the right things to do, the wrong things to do. And he can, if someone's really struggling to get something, a concept, uh, you know, it may be. We'll say codependency. Um, he can just, I don't know, he just flips, he can flip into addict mode because he, you know, that's what he was for many, many years. He was an addict. He was homeless um, on the streets for a long time. And there wasn't any rehabs about when he was in addiction. He had to do it all himself. But he can flip into addict mode and tell you exactly what the addict is thinking in a particular situation mm -hmm. and then he'll flip back into his therapist role of supporting the families so yeah very amazing man he was my inspiration um really to start helping families as well and uh i have a lot i, I owe him an awful lot because not only did my son go through his rehab program for the third time they gave him a third opportunity to go through this program um and he's now been in recovery for over two years so he went in at the beginning of the pandemic and he's been living in semi-supported housing since then and he's about to get his own place and yeah so he, my son you know owes his life to him really uh, and everyone, even this therapist had said, all the professionals that had written my son off, they thought he was a hopeless case. They were like, he was never, ever going to make it. And the fact that he's turned his life around, the therapist said, it's people like my son that make his life, his job worthwhile, because he said, we never thought he'd do it. He says, to see what he's doing now. He says he's just amazing. Um, so, yeah, so not only did he, uh, you know, give my son the third opportunity to go through his programme, he also inspired me to work with families and do what he does. Um, yeah, I've just learned so much. And while my son was in rehab in the pandemic, I wrote a 12-week online programme because, and I'm sure it is the same over there, there's a lot of people that don't admit that there's an addict in the family because of the shame, the stigma, the judgments, the fear. Um, they don't reach out for help. 
So I thought, right, I'm going to write an online programme because no one can go anywhere. All, group, all meetings were online anyway. And it's a programme that people can do from their privacy and the comfort of their own home. And as I say, it runs over 12 weeks. And it starts off with educating them about addiction and then looking at why addiction is a family disease and the parts that families play in addiction. But it also goes through, you know, how to put boundaries in place, how to stop enabling. Um, how did <clears throat> so you said um, how you took part in the addiction? How how do you think you influenced your son's addiction, whether it be good or bad? Okay, so in the early days, I was doing all things like giving him money. I'd got no boundaries whatsoever because I didn't even know what a boundary was then um and then when I started to go to this family group I started to learn all about well everything to do with addiction so how addicts think um how addiction affects people then I was, I was learn, learning about boundaries. So it's been a really slow process. But I think the one thing that really stood out for me was, now you take on, everybody takes on board things at different times. We all learn at different paces, etc. And I've been going to this group for about three years when one evening he was talking about codependency. And I suddenly looked and I thought, he's talking about me. And I know he'd mentioned codependency before, but I don't think he had ever really gone in. And I was like, oh, my goodness, that is me. And I think once I realised that I was codependent on my son, so my son was addicted to his drug of choice, I was addicted to my addict and my life depended on him being happy and if he wasn't happy I wasn't happy and everything would just go like chaotic and pear-shaped and I start at that point it was a real eye-opener for me because when I realized what I was doing I was like oh wow so unless I start to change, he's never going to change. And this is when I started to put in little boundaries, things that I could live with, things that I could enforce, because I tried putting some boundaries in place. And one of them would have been not giving him money. And then he'd come up with a sob story of why he needed money. And I'd just cave in and give him money. It might have been he'd got no electric or he'd got no food. And my biggest thing as a mum was I hated to think he was cold or he was hungry. So and he knew that. So I would give him money. Um, well, of course, when I realised I was codependent, the first thing I stopped was giving him money. So I'd take him to get food. I would go with him to pay for electricity. I wouldn't just give him willy-nilly anymore. And then another thing I did was 
I started to put my phone on silent when I went to bed. Well, I used to switch it off because I think most addicts become quite nocturnal. And I used to get phone calls all through the night while I was still working full time. Um, and I'd still have to get up and go to work, regardless of whether he'd rang me or he hadn't. Most nights he would ring me in the early hours. And I, I just started to switch my phone off. And the reason I started to switch my phone off was because at the family group, they'd said to me, well, what's the worst that can happen in the night? And I'm well, straight away, you're like, oh, my God, you know, he could die. Um, or, you know, if he needed me for anything, he could die. And the answer was, but wouldn't you be able to cope with things a lot better if you'd had a full night's sleep? And I, I took that on board because I need my sleep. I'm not very good when I'm tired. And the times I used to go travelling round in the middle of the night to try and find him. So I thought, no, I'm going to switch the phone off. So I did. The first night I did it, I was a bit like, oh, my goodness, what have I done? And I got up the next morning and there was three messages from the ambulance people saying that they were with him. Um, and of course, I then rang and he was fine anyway. And I think that only happened... A couple of times within a week he knew I wasn't going to be available during the night because I was switching my phone off so of course he stopped ringing or trying to contact me or getting the police to contact me or the ambulance people to contact me because he knew that I wouldn't answer the phone anyway so that stopped um, and I still switch my phone off um, at half past nine every night even now uh, so, yeah, that's just one thing that I've really stuck to. Um, and I'm trying to think what else. I think eventually, and the hardest thing, and it goes back to the three C's, which is obviously from Al-Anon, which is you didn't cause it, you can't control it, you can't cure it. And I've added my own on now, which is you do have choices. And I think as a family member, you forget that you have choices. And it wasn't until I accepted that I couldn't help him because I wasn't a professional and I was too close to him emotionally and that I had no control over anybody else except for myself it wasn't until that I got to that point and accepted that he was on his path and I was on my path that I actually really started to change. And I then put in boundaries of, I mean, by this time, all my family had walked away. There was still me there and I couldn't walk away. However, I did protect myself. So... If he was trying, so if he was going to the community alcohol support places, I would support him or if he needed to get there, I would take him. Um, if he'd got any medical appointments around addiction, I would help him out and take him there. But I sat him down and I said to him, if you are under the influence of anything, I will walk away, even if I've 
driven like you know 45 minutes to see you if I get there and you are under the influence I will drive away and that happened many many times because yeah there were times I couldn't get him out of my car and I'd have to ring the police because he just wouldn't get out of the car and there were a lot of incidents where I suppose I could have been in danger not that I ever thought I really was, but I could have been. And I look back now and think, hmm, there were times when I did and said the right things to keep myself safe. Because I knew if I said something that wasn't quite right, it would flare up and there'd be a huge row um, or a huge argument. So I used to, I, I used to gauge the situation. Uh, until I got to the point where I was like no I'm not putting up with this anymore and I used to say to him every time I spoke to him I love you I'm always here for you if you want to get help and you want to get into recovery but I will not spend time with you while you're under the influence and I would say the last three years of his addiction he was literally on his own, as in he was trying to get himself into recovery. He was engaging with all the services and they put a plan in place. And he eventually got in to rehab for the third time. But as I say, by that time, I'd, I'd sort of really stepped back and it was his journey because that was his life. It wasn't my life. And I know some people probably think that's quite harsh. But I never walked away. I couldn't walk away. And he always knew that I loved him. And he always knew I would support him if he was making the right choices. And this is what I teach the families that I work with now. Is, you know, you don't have to walk away. And I know a lot of people that don't understand and they think they're saying the right thing. They say, oh, just get rid of them, walk out, you know, get yourself out of there. They're no good, blah, blah, blah. But these people, you know, addicts are people. And I would say 99.9% .9 of them are really lovely people. They are just ill. And they've got a mental illness that a lot of people don't understand. And it's not until they start getting consequences for their actions that they'll start looking to try and get into recovery. So, yes, yeah, so I suppose that's that's the whole of my story. <laughs> um, and now I was approached by a charity at the beginning of the year um, to go and run a group for them, which I do every week. Um, and yeah, I just, it's just amazing to see people change. Every week I'll cover something different and they've, you know, they have exercises to do. Some weeks it's just sharing and offering support and trying to point them in the right direction. Um, but yeah, just watching people start to get it, knowing that they haven't got to walk away, that they can support the addict in the right way but they've got to put their own self-care first before you know it's like you can't serve from an empty cup so if you're not looking after yourself 
how can you help and support someone else? Um, and yeah, I just like to watch people flourish as they start to get it and they start to change and they are supporting their addict in the right way, but also protecting themselves and making sure that they've got a life as well because they deserve to have a life too. So yeah, that's about it, really. <laughs> so <clears throat> the last question I always ask everybody is, do you have any advice for people watching and listening? I certainly do. Do not suffer in silence. I know that over here in the UK, and it will be a lot more in, in over there, in the UK, there are between three and five million family members or friends suffering in silence um, and not reaching out for help. I would just reach out for help, talk to somebody, don't suffer in silence because for every one addict, they affect between four and 12 people. So you've got between four and 12 people who are innocent bystanders thrown into a world of chaos that they know nothing about most of the time. So, yeah, reach out and definitely make contact with somebody that can support and help you. So that's what I would say. Don't suffer in silence. I like that saying, don't suffer in silence. It's absolutely true. Yeah. There are people that are absolutely in the same boat as you and it's good it's good to have, talk to someone that knows what you're talking about that feeling of they they just get it they're going through the same stuff it's the same it's, alcoholism and drug addicts they alcoholics and drug addicts i should say they share all the same symptoms yeah so a lot of people go to like you said they go to al-anon and you can share and realize that you're not alone that's right yeah, and there is another thing I always say is the power is in the group and I think, or the power is in the community. And I think that goes for addicts as well as for families. I think to be able to have a community where you're not judged is so important, whether you're an addict or whether you're a family member. So yeah, the power is definitely in the community or the group. I love that you say that. So in Addicts Anonymous, we have four pillars. First one is self-love. Second one is discipline. Third one is hard work. And the fourth one is community. Yeah, I think that is so important. Yeah, because it's a pillar. We have a 10-step program, and that's like the foundation. We call it the four pillars of Addicts Anonymous. For community, like you said, having the right people there is invaluable. It's, it's, a, a, it's an amazing resource and tool to have. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I know my son works 12 step program now. Um, and yeah, he's very, you know, he surrounds himself by so many other people in the same position as him. He goes to lots of, he goes to AA meetings, not so much. He likes the NA meetings and emotional well-being meetings. And he also works at the uh, rehab unit now that he went through. Cool. Mm. So did you have anything else you want to add? No, other than if, if anybody wants to reach out to me, please feel free. 
Um, am I able to give my number or my website? Yeah, of course, absolutely. Okay, so um, I'm in the UK, so my contact number is plus four four seven five zero six two five eight one five three, and my website is hhcoaching.uk. So that's Harry Harry hhcoaching.uk, and you can find out all about me on there. <laughs> awesome, awesome, that's great. It's absolutely great. So, yeah, thank you for coming on today. Oh, thanks so much. No, it was a pleasure having you. It really was. It's good to get a different perspective from a parent's point of view. Yeah. Because you you see it different. You know what I mean? It's just you see it different than, you know, the addict themselves. Well, yeah, I think from a parent's point of view, all you want to do is help and protect. But when addiction comes along, the helping and protection that we think of is not what is needed. It's the opposite sort of thing. So, and it's hard to get your head around. Yeah. All right. So let's wrap this up. I want to say to everybody listening and watching, if you like what you saw and heard, go below and give us a like. Also subscribe and you'll see when we upload new videos. You can also check out our website. It has a ton of resources, a bunch of literature, which is www.addicts-anonymous.com. And also check us out. We're on Reddit, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. We have a group as well. So check us out. I hope you like what you heard and saw this week. And until next time.